Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. Turn with me in your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 8 through 11. 1 Corinthians 12, 8 through 11. There's no sound more beautiful to a preacher than the sound of turning pages of Bibles. There's just a distinct sound about that. And as you are turning, let's briefly recap where we have been in our series on the fullness of life. We've been studying the role of spiritual gifts in a full life, and as they, especially as they are revealed in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14. And we define spiritual gifts like this. They are special abilities imparted to Christians by the Holy Spirit, to serve others for the glory of God. And so this is so foundational. Let me say it again. They are special abilities imparted to Christians by the Holy Spirit to serve others for the glory of God. And when they are exercised biblically, according to God's instructions, here are the results, and they are powerful. God is glorified, and that's the ultimate goal. The church is edified or built up as the body functions the way it was intended, Good triumphs over evil, and believers live full or abundant lives. So lots and lots of good stuff happens when we exercise our spiritual gifts the way that they were intended. And then in last week in verses 4 through 7, we uncovered three important truths about spiritual gifts. Very simply, there is much variety in the gifts meant to operate in unity like the Trinity. Much variety meant to operate in unity like the Trinity and also like my favorite childhood cartoon, the Super Friends, right? Where each superhero has their own unique superpower and their own unique role to play. So it is to be in the body of Christ as we exercise a wide variety of spiritual gifts in unity like the Trinity. And so as we have studied spiritual gifts defined and spiritual gifts described, Today, we examine spiritual gifts listed, and this is where we really start to get into the nitty-gritty of what Paul is trying to communicate to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So would you please stand with me as I read today's text? It says this, For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray and ask for God's help this morning? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have a solid place upon which to stand. And Father, this morning as we examine your word together, as we engage it, I pray that you'd open our hearts, open our ears, open our minds, that your Holy Spirit might be able to speak clearly to us and that we might respond with obedience. I pray against all distractions and all the things that the evil one would desire to do to to sabotage your word going forth today. And ultimately, God, we pray for unity pray that your word would bind us together. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. 
there are actually four passages of Scripture that list spiritual gifts. You can find spiritual gift lists in Romans chapter 12, verses 6 through 8. Today's passage, 1 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10, a little bit later in chapter 12 and verse 28, there are some more spiritual gifts listed, and also in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. And what I found really fascinating is when you put these lists side by side, and it may be a little bit small for your eyes to read on the screen, but in each column it represents the gifts listed in each one of those passages. What do you notice about it? They're largely different. There is some duplication of certain gifts, but they are distinct and individual and unique lists. They are all different with some overlap, but each list is unique, omitting some gifts in some lists, including other gifts in some lists, which I think makes for a profound implication for us this morning. And this one might challenge your thinking a little bit, but I believe this is evidence that the lists of spiritual gifts are not meant to be exhaustive. They're not meant to be exhaustive. Rather, they are representative. They are examples of commonly occurring and important. I I don't think anybody could argue that any of the, the gifts listed there are not important gifts, but they are examples of important and commonly occurring spiritual gifts in the body of Christ. But just as we saw last week with God's great variety as evidenced by stars and fish and birds and spiders, I believe that same variety is present in spiritual gifts. There's a wide and broad spectrum of gifts, and not all of them are named specifically in the Scriptures. For they are, as we learned in verse 7, and this makes perfect sense to me, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. As we learned last week, spiritual gifts are how the Holy Spirit makes Himself known through us, and as we learned last week, this will be done with incredible variety. But here today we're given a list of nine specific gifts. Let's look at them together again as a unit. And let me read it once again in focusing in on the the highlights. Yellow being the spiritual gifts, green the emphasis of to another, and the blue the emphasis on the same spirit. So it says, For to one is given through the spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same spirit. To another, faith by the same spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. Are you seeing the variety here? All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So Paul once again goes out of his way to communicate the great variety of gifts that are meant to function together in unity. The question I have, and maybe you have, is this. Why does Paul list these particular gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10? Why does he zero in on these nine? Well, if you notice, these are gifts which, just at face value, we might consider to be more dramatic or miraculous in nature. Look at them again. Utterance of wisdom, utterance of knowledge, faith, gifts of healing, the working of miracles, prophecy, the ability to distinguish between spirits, various kinds of tongues, and interpretation of tongues. They clearly have a miraculous or supernatural flavor to them, don't they? So why does Paul list these miraculous gifts here? I believe it is because these seemingly dramatic or miraculous gifts were likely the cause of gift envy, and division in Corinth, 
especially the gift of tongues. Let me say that again. These seemingly dramatic or miraculous gifts were likely the cause of gift envy and division in Corinth, especially the gift of tongues. And so he cuts to the chase and addresses them right here. He puts it out there. And as he does so, he reminds the Corinthians of the great variety of gifts that God sovereignly distributes throughout the church, and that they should not get hung up on possessing any one particular gift. This is why Paul goes out of his way to use that phrase, to another, to another, to another, to another, to emphasize the diversity of gifts, the variety, and how they are distributed wide and far. So, again, if we just throw up that unit again, you see the green to another, to another, to another. Paul's message to the Corinthians, stop fixating on any one gift and celebrate the variety of gifts that God has entrusted to you. And so let's take a moment and attempt to define these listed gifts. And I I say attempt because one of the things is, the truth of the matter is, the scriptures do not actually define the gifts. The scriptures do not actually define the gifts. It lists them. We're given examples, and we're given some instructions, but there really are no clear, definite definitions of the gifts, which is problematic for those like me who like everything to be clean and tidy. I want everything to be wrapped up in a box with a bow on top, but the Apostle Paul doesn't seem nearly as interested in that as we are. He lists gifts without giving clear definition to them. So we are left to make some educated speculation from the examples given in Scripture. First on the list that Paul gives in this passage is the utterance of wisdom. The utterance of wisdom, which is the special ability to bring God's wisdom. The special ability to bring God's wisdom. People with this gift are are given special insight by the Holy Spirit with accompanying application. For example, I I think of uh, King Solomon. Remember that story where the, the two ladies bring a baby to King Solomon, and each claim to be the mother of the baby. What would you do in that situation? King Solomon commanded that the baby should be cut in two, which then elicited the desperate and heartfelt emotion of the real mother. This was an exercise, I believe, of divine wisdom that the Holy Spirit used in Solomon to reveal the true mother of the baby. Um, Stephen, in the New Testament, we read in Acts chapter 6, verse 8, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Again, I believe this is an example of Stephen exercising the spiritual gift of the utterance of wisdom. And is it not a gift that we're in desperate need of today? right? In our confusing and crazy world, we need supernatural wisdom. Next on the list is something called the utterance of knowledge. The utterance of knowledge. This is the special ability to bring God's knowledge. The Holy Spirit gives information to these folks that could not be known any other way. For example, when Jesus was ministering to the woman at the well, he said to her in John 14, 16, go call your husband and come here. To which the woman replied, I have no husband. Now remember, Jesus never met this woman, yet he says in the second half of John 4, 17, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be 
the Christ. You say, well, wait, that's Jesus. That's, that's Jesus, right? And we could have a lot of deep conversations as to whether Jesus was able to do this based upon his divinity or based upon in his humanity, his dependence upon the Holy Spirit. But at any rate, in the book of Acts, we see Peter exercising the spiritual gift of the utterance of knowledge when he was confronted with Ananias and Sapphira. You remember that story? Ananias and Sapphira, they brought to the apostles what they claimed to be the proceeds from the piece of land that they sold, but really they held back some of the money for themselves and lied about it. Yet by the spiritual gift of the utterance of knowledge, Peter knew that this was not true. And so he says in Acts 5.3, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? How did Peter know that? I believe he knew it because of the utterance of knowledge, as Peter exercised this particular spiritual gift. Heard stories as well. I've never had the experience myself, and Mac, it'd be interesting to have a conversation with you about this, where in certain pastoral counseling sessions where um, a pastor or a counselor will have a distinct impression or maybe even the word like pornography giving special insight, special knowledge into what the real root of a situation is without the person actually communicating that. Next on the list is the spiritual gift of faith. Now, we're, we're all called to faith, right? We're saved by faith. We walk by faith. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. But we've all encountered those certain individuals who excel at faith. No matter what the circumstance, no matter what the situation, they are so rock solid in their faith and in their trust. Now, no matter how hopeless the situation may seem, their trust in God is unshaken, and they believe that God will hold true to his promises and his word. And so the spiritual gift of faith is a special ability to trust God's promises. I think of the heroes of the faith in Hebrews chapter 11. I am known for possessing an exceptional kind of faith, especially Abraham, right? An old man with an old and barren wife, and yet God promised that Abraham would become the father of a mighty nation with descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And it says of Abraham in Romans 4, He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That's an exceptional kind of faith. I believe it is the spiritual gift of faith. He was fully convinced And more recently, I think of a man like George Mueller. Are you familiar with that name, George Mueller? He was a great minister of the gospel in the 1800s. He cared for over 10,000 orphans. 10,000 orphans. And one of the defining characteristics of George Mueller's ministry was the fact that he never asked people for money. He never asked people for money. Instead, who did he ask? God. And he trusted that in his asking, that God would provide for his perfect need and his perfect time. And the result for George Mueller was testimony after testimony after testimony of God's often miraculous provision. I believe George Mueller possessed and exercised the spiritual gift of faith. Next on the list is gifts of healing, defined as the special ability to bring God's healing. Fairly self-explanatory, but people with this gift, they follow the prompting of the Holy Spirit to pray for the sick, And when that happens, God brings healing through them. Now, make no mistake, God himself is the great physician, but he works through those he gifts. 
It is not a blank check to pray over anyone and presume that that healing is automatic. Far from it. Rather, as is in the case with utterance of wisdom and utterance of knowledge, it is a response to the Holy Spirit's leading and prompting. How frequently that happens, I do not know. I don't even believe the individual would know. But when it happens, it happens. This is in great contrast to faith healers, right, that you've probably seen on TV that give us a terrible taste in our mouth whenever the topic of healing comes up, who, who promise that you will be healed if you just will sow a certain amount of seed money into their ministry. Heard that before? While they travel around in their private jets to one of their many mansions, and it is truly tragic that God's genuine gifts have been so terribly corrupted and abused leaving so many disillusioned, and I believe even fearful of spiritual gifts. The next gift on the list is working of miracles, which I believe is tightly related to the, the gifts of healing. Working of miracles is the special ability to bring God's power to a situation. Again, once again, under the prompting and leading of the Holy Spirit, His direction, somehow, some way, in any way that God would creatively choose, the laws of creation are briefly suspended for the purpose of revealing and glorifying the Creator. The Bible is full of examples where this happens. This gift is, seemed to be at work in the church at Galatia, where Paul wrote in Galatians 3.5, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? This was the church at Galatia, where Paul acknowledges that God's at work even in miraculous ways among you. Miracles were part of their experience. Quite possibly as God worked through those, he specially gifted as conduits of his power. Again, this is not people with a blank check to walk around and to do crazy things and to perform miracles whenever they choose. It's the Holy Spirit by his direction, his leadership, his prompting may say, I want you to lay hands on that situation and I want you to pray this prayer. And lo and behold, God shows up. Next is the gift of prophecy, and we will go into great depth and detail on this in chapter 14 because that's really what it's about. For now, it's enough to know that prophecy is the special ability to speak God's message, the special ability to speak God's message, closely related, I believe, to utterance of wisdom and utterance of knowledge, but prophecy probably is the communication of a more fully formed, detailed message from the Lord. Again, utterance of wisdom, you get some special direction in terms of application. Utterance of knowledge, you have a word or maybe an image or something for, for a particular situation. This is a message more fully formed. It may or may not have to do with the future. It may address a situation in the present. But what must be made crystal clear, and hear me carefully, is that the exercise of this spiritual gift of prophecy is not even close to being on a par with authoritative Scripture. Rather, the exercise of the gift of prophecy is always under the authority of Scripture. And likely it has to do with the personal application of Scripture. So the prophecy and Scripture, tightly related. I know in certain circles people will say things like, well, the proclamation of the Word of God through preaching, that's prophecy. And it may be a type of prophecy, but I believe in what was being spoken of here as a spiritual gift is probably a bit different than that. Next, is the ability to distinguish between spirits. And this is the special ability to bring God's discernment. The special ability to bring God's discernment, specifically in the spiritual realm. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out 
into the world. People with the spiritual gift of distinguishing between spirits, they excel at this testing of the spirits. They have like an extra sense, a spiritual radar, if you will, which is able to accurately detect the presence and operation of evil. Some of you have experienced that personally. You walk into a room and you know instantaneously that there is something otherworldly that is not of God that has at work in that room in that situation. Next is the gift of various kinds of tongues. And here's where we really get into some deep water, right? Which is the special ability to speak in unknown languages. Two kinds of tongues mentioned in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, tongues are literal earthly dialects that were given so that everyone gathered in Jerusalem at Pentecost could hear the gospel proclaimed in their own language and then take it back to their homes. That's one kind of tongues. But in Acts 14, again, we're going to camp out there in a few weeks, tongues are a language all their own. Not known dialects, a language all their own, which is the reason for the last spiritual gift in the list, which is interpretation of tongues. And this is the special ability to interpret unknown languages. The idea that God would speak a message through a person speaking an unknown language that someone else is then enabled to understand and then to share with others. This would be the exercise of the gift of interpretation of tongues. Through such a manifestation of the Spirit, the church would be edified and God would be glorified. Not to run too far ahead, Paul says this about tongues, interpretation, and prophecy in chapter 14, just to give you a little foretaste. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 3 says, On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. All right, there's a lot to unpack there, and we'll do that in a few weeks. But today, I want you to see how, from Paul's perspective, these gifts fit together and the importance that he places on them. Now, this list of miraculous gifts raises a very relevant and important question for us today, a question you have probably already been mulling over in your mind, and the question is this, are these gifts for today? It's a big question. It's an important question. Should we expect today to encounter such seemingly dramatic or miraculous spiritual gifts? And there are two main answers to this question, causing believers to fall into largely one of two camps. First, there are those known as cessationists. Cessationists. And very simply, they believe that certain spiritual gifts have ceased. Certain spiritual gifts have ceased. Which spiritual gifts? Well, largely the ones we just talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Those of a um, overtly supernatural or miraculous nature, um, such miraculous gifts are viewed as temporary and limited to the apostles in the first century. Now, it is really important to represent cessationists accurately to note that they believe, overwhelmingly, that God still can and does perform miracles today. It's not that God went to sleep and never does anything miraculous anymore. Rather, it is the assertion that he no longer gives miraculous gifts to individuals. Does that make sense? Now, some examples of well-known cessationists. John MacArthur is a cessationist. Albert Moeller is a cessationist. All right? So that's that particular camp. In contrast is the second group known as continuationists. Continuationists. They believe that all of the spiritual gifts continue even the miraculous gifts listed in our text today. And the exercise of these gifts will continue until the second coming 
of Jesus. So not only is there room for God to perform miracles today, but he also gives miraculous gifts today. And some um, well-known continuationists are people like Wayne Grudem, John Piper, D.A. Carson, and Matt Chandler. And if you haven't kind of figured out by now, I am also a continuationist. All right, You probably were able to imply that from some of the things I said earlier. I am in the continuationist camp. I know many of you are in the cessationist camp, and that's okay. All right, that's okay, because while I believe that the subject of spiritual gifts is important, it is a secondary issue. While I believe that the subject of spiritual gifts is important, it is a secondary issue. Now listen carefully. I believe it's important because if we do not exercise all of the spiritual gifts that God intends for us, what is the consequence for the body? We're going to kind of limp along and be less than we should be. And to be honest, I feel like that's a pretty accurate description of the evangelical church today. Kind of limping along because we're missing something, some things. But while important spiritual gifts are not a primary issue, and when I say primary issue, I'm referring to things like the Trinity. That's a primary issue. The gospel, the humanity and the divinity of Jesus. These are primary issues that are bleed and die issues, the kind of issues that we part company over. But there are other issues that, while important, are indeed secondary. We don't bleed and die over those. For example, we spent a year or so preaching through the book of Revelation, and I have no doubt that there are, uh, there are those of you who weren't exactly on the same page with me in my interpretation of eschatology in the book of Revelation. And again, that's an important issue, but it's a secondary issue. It's not in the same nature as the Trinity and the gospel and the humanity and the divinity of Jesus. And so, my interpretation on spiritual gifts may not be lining up with yours either. But in the meantime, I have a job to do, right? I have a job to do. My job is to humbly and prayerfully present to you my interpretation of the scriptures. And so that's what I am going to do. And so what I do want to do in the next few minutes is to present to you how cessationists and continuationists each support their respective positions. It's not for the purpose of arguing. And my fear is that now you know that I am in the continuationist camp and it's going to come across like I'm trying to tell you cessationists how wrong you are. And that's not my motivation at all. And so I please, I don't want it to come across that way, but I am going to lay it out for you and say, Hey, this is how each of those come to their various conclusions. So um, this is going to be very brief and not nearly doing justice to it. So for you who are, it's going to probably frustrate some of you cessationists. And you're like, well, you didn't talk about this. And you didn't, I understand that. And that's completely fair. But let me hit some main points. First of all, cessationists appeal to scripture as they rightly should. Cessationists appeal to scripture in a few key texts in particular. The first is 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. It says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with the utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. And so the thinking of cessationists is like this, that based on this verse, the miraculous gifts were signs that were unique to the apostles for the purpose of authenticating their apostleship. And I would agree that that is true, but I don't think it has to be an only thing. I think there are other things. Here, here are a couple issues I'd like to point out about that particular verse and that line of thinking. First of all, there are non-apostles in the scriptures, like Stephen in Acts chapter 6, verse 8, and Philip in Acts chapter 8, verses 6 and 7, who are noted to have exercised miraculous gifts. Non-apostles. Number two, I, I believe Paul's very words in today's passage contradict this line of thinking, do they not? What I mean is this, um, to whom is Paul writing in 1 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10? 
he's writing to non-apostles. He's writing to a church. All right? And, to, and what, is he, what is he saying to them? He's acknowledging to them, these non-apostles, that these miraculous gifts are in fact an expected part of church life. They're just not doing it right. They're way off the beam. A second passage of Scripture to which cessationists appeal is 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 10. Again, a passage we'll study in greater depth in just a few weeks. It says, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Well, here it says that prophecies and tongues will cease. The question is when, right? The cessationists would argue that this happened at the end of the apostolic age or perhaps when the canon of Scripture was completed because a common cessationist argument is, well, we have the Bible now. We don't need that other stuff. We have the Bible. But what does verse 10 say about the when? When do tongues and prophecies and knowledge pass away? Um, when the perfect comes. Well, what do you think that means? I think it seems clear to me that it's a reference to when Jesus returns. So it's not the end of the apostolic age, not the completion of the canon, but the end of the church age. And until then, the message seems to be from Paul that these gifts will actually continue. So cessationists, they appeal to Scripture, rightfully so. That's a right impulse. I just don't think that the conclusions are quite where they should be. And then there's an appeal to experience, or maybe it's more accurate to say a lack of experience. The argument is largely one from silence. That as one reads the later books in the New Testament, there seems to be less and less mention of miracles. And then a seemingly absence of miracles in certain eras of church history and in the writings of key figures. Or that miracles were clustered at certain times in the scriptures. We had the time period of Moses and Joshua. We had the time period of Elijah and Elisha. And then the time period of Jesus and the apostles. And that really, miracles only happened in those particular eras, which... Is interesting, but it's also the law, the prophets, and the gospel and the apostles, right? Which is largely the canon of scripture. And the acknowledgement that our experience today, we, we cannot question the fact that our experience today doesn't look like what we read about in the New Testament, does it? And so, well, it must not be in effect, therefore, today. So it is reasoned by way of experience or the lack of experience that these miraculous gifts have ceased. But what's rule number one, right, regarding spiritual gifts and the validity of spiritual gifts? Rule number one is that negative test that Paul gave to us. Is it consistent with Scripture? The point being, we must always interpret our experience through the lens of Scripture and not the other way around. So if there are times when there seems to be a, a lesser or lack of spiritual gifts in history or by experience, um, I can't explain that, but what I can explain is what the Scriptures teach. We must always interpret experience through the lens of Scripture and not read back into Scripture our experience. Well, I believe that if we're honest, the other appeal that cessationists make to experience has to do with fear, and I understand this fear completely. It's the fear of the church becoming like a circus, right? Some of you have been to some churches that are quite circus-like haven't you? And I, I don't like the circus. Clowns terrify me. And 
We don't want any part of the crazy stuff that we've seen on television or in some uncomfortable experiences that we've had with certain traditions in certain places at certain times. We certainly don't want to be associated with that circus-like craziness. And so in light of the many abuses like the faith healers that we talked about earlier, we just better steer clear of these gifts. We better just leave them alone. But here's what I find interesting. Nowhere were spiritual gifts being abused more than in Corinth, right? And what does Paul do? He doesn't say, hey, then you better just knock it off. Just stop. All right, you can't handle this. Don't participate in it. Just stay far away from it because you're not doing it right. No, rather than prohibiting their exercise of the gifts, what does he do? We're going to see in the chapters to come, um, he instructs them. He instructs them on how they are supposed to be exercised appropriately. And I believe that it is that instruction piece that has led, or lack of instruction piece that has led largely to the abuses that we've talked about and how churches and people go off the beam and they're not, it, it becomes the circus. First Baptist Church will never be a circus. God's, God is a God of order. He is not a God of disorder. And Paul makes the point so crystal clear, our worship is to be orderly. But it is also to be spirit-filled. So there is the both and. So that is a really brief and I'm sure incomplete explanation of where cessationists are coming from in a few rebuttals on my part. Let's take a brief look at how continuationists support their position. Remember, continuationists believe that all of the spiritual gifts continue even today, even the miraculous gifts. And like cessationists, continuationists also appeal to Scripture. Which Scriptures? I don't want this to sound like I'm being a smart aleck, okay? Because it might, but I would say all of them. I would say all of them because it, 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 it's my contention if, and this is way far-fetched, I agree, but if an alien were to land on the earth and read the Bible at face value without presupposition, I believe continuationism would be the conclusion that that alien would come to. I, I think it's only after we create artificial categories like temporary and permanent, miraculous, non-miraculous, and read these back into the text that we arrive at cessationism. Maybe it's just my bias coming through strongly, but it is true that nowhere does Scripture artificially categorize spiritual gifts with labels like temporary or permanent, miraculous or non-miraculous. They're just all spiritual gifts. We do that. We put the categories and the labels on them I believe, in part, in an effort to explain our position of cessationism. Well, again, like cessationism, continuation also makes an appeal to experience. And the thinking is this, very flawed. If there are all of these spiritual experiences that are happening and all of these gifts in operation and demonstrations of spiritual power, then it must be legitimate, right? Wrong. Not right. For Satan is the great counterfeiter, and just because someone has a powerful spiritual experience doesn't mean it's from God. And the fact of the matter is that while I am a continuationist, it is my belief that much of what people claim to experience today is the result of either suggestion, peer pressure, or even the demonic. And that's what leads to many of the abuses that we are so afraid of, the circus that we don't want to have any part of. And so we run away, we run the other direction, and we neglect spiritual gifts. Therefore, we must always go back to rule number one. Is it consistent with Scripture? Is it consistent with Scripture? We must always interpret experience through the lens of Scripture and not the other way around. And when it comes to the exercise of spiritual gifts, 
we must always do so in light of the instructions given in God's Word. And again, I think that's where it breaks down. There's a lack of instruction. There's a lack of surrendering and submitting experience to the lens of Scripture. All right, um, that is a lot to throw at you this morning, isn't it? And I am sweating. But let's bring this to a close this morning by asking the question, how should we then live? It's like, all right, what kind of practical application can we make out of this this morning? I think some important application. Number one, hold tightly to primary issues and loosely to secondary issues. That's a big problem in our culture today, isn't it? We've made everything a primary issue. And so we fight about everything as if it's all equal. It's not all equal. There are some things we just got to say, you know, that's not, we don't agree. We're not going, it's not a primary issue. Nuance, the ability to intelligently and maturely be able to engage and to be able to give some sense of priority to what is truly primary and what is truly secondary. If it's gospel, if it's the nature of Jesus, if it is the Trinity, you fight for that with all your worth. But below those things are quite a few secondary issues that we may disagree on. They may be important, but they are secondary. Again, primary issues, the gospel, the trinity, the divinity of Jesus. I believe second spiritual gifts is a secondary issue, but I do believe it's important for the reason that I stated earlier, that if we are not exercising all of the gifts that God intends for us, the body will not be as complete as it is intended to be, and it will limp along when it was made to run. And again, I just want to reiterate, I'm not about circuses, all right? But I do believe that I highly value becoming all that God intends for us to be as revealed in his word. Second, number two, how should we then live? Purpose to be a both and disciple and church. Purpose to be a both and disciple and church. You hear me talk about this fairly regularly. I bring it up from time to time because I believe it's something that's unique about First Baptist Church, this church family. And what I mean is most churches are either or. They are either spirit or truth. And if there's spirit, it's a circus. If it's truth, it is dead. Either either experience or word. Either heart or mind. Either experiential or doctrinal. We're different. We're different. I believe that we have the unique opportunity at FBC to be a both and church. Both spirit and truth. Committed to sound doctrine and to Holy Spirit fire. Number three, how should we then live? Exchange the fear of man for the fear of God. Exchange the fear of man for the fear of God. Speaking for me personally, if there's anything holding me back from experiencing the fullness of the Holy Spirit and his gifts, it is the fear of man. I don't want people to think I'm weird. Um, what if I fail? What if I look weird? What will people think? And that's where I have a choice to make, and we all have a choice to make. Will we live in the fear of man, or will we live in the fear of God? Because fearing man is a surefire way to grieve the Holy Spirit and to put a lid on our spiritual growth. So to recap, number one, hold tightly to primary issues and loosely to secondary issues. Number two, purpose to be a both-and disciple in church. And number three, exchange the fear of man for the fear of God. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Father, I pray that um, what I have communicated this morning would be received
as it's intended by those who may think differently, I pray that it would come across humbly and prayerfully and not arrogantly, not pridefully, not in any kind of accusatory or judgmental kind of way. And so, God, I just pray that you would protect that. God, I pray that you would um, work mightily in each one of our lives as we wrestle with these. These are not easy things. This is deep. But I do believe it is important. And so, God, would you shape us and mold us to be the disciples that you have called us to be and to be the church that you have called us to be. I pray against fear. I pray against the abuses that we are all too familiar with. God, protect us from that as we are rooted in your word. May we never become in any way, shape, or form an embarrassment to you or a stumbling block to others. Uh, This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.